Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm here to bring you all the good news this week from the financial markets. Well, that would be nice, but I'm afraid there's not that much to cheer in what has been another week of mostly gloomy headlines, downward movements in the prices of shares and bonds, and mostly tough talking from central banks. My guest this week is Ewan Lovett-Turner, Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities. More from him shortly. So we've seen both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England raise interest rates by 75 basis points this week. That's 0.7% in uh, plain language, bringing official interest rates in both countries to new highs. That's been reflected also in the government bond market, where yields have picked up again. Ten-year bond yields in the US have edged back above 4% from 2% at the start of the year. And the 10-year gilt in the UK is is steadying around 3.5%, down from its post-truss crisis levels, but uh, still up from 1% at the start of the year. The yield curve, the relationship between short and longer-term government bond yields, remains inverted, uh, a traditional warning signal of an impending recession. The Bank of England, which a few years ago you would never have heard mentioning the word recession for fear of making it a self-fulfilling prophecy, This week, not only forecasts that the UK is heading for one, but that it could last as much as two years, the longest in living memory. Unlike uh, his counterpart in the US, however, Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, insisted publicly that market expectations of where interest rates will peak in the UK have been set too high. The bank is desperate to stop interest rate expectations getting too high too soon for fear of the impact on the economy and on mortgage rates in particular. So it's a different tactic from uh, past practice. In contrast, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, was at pains to spell out that market expectations of the likely peak in US interest rates were too low. Uh, Clearly, the two men both have different agendas, hence the difference in messaging. With the US economy still stronger than the UK or European equivalents, Uh, with one central banker trying to talk rates up and the other attempting to talk them down, and bond yields being higher in the US, it's no great surprise that the week has seen sterling weaken a little against the dollar, uh, having recovered from its uh, post-trust crisis lows close to parity with the dollar. Commodity prices have firmed a little. Meanwhile, investors await with some trepidation the package of spending cuts and tax rises that will feature in the mini-budget to be unveiled by the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt on November the 17th. Of notable interest to investors are the leaks suggesting that among the measures being studied by the Treasury are changes in corporation tax, capital gains tax, stamp duty and the tax on dividend income. Though it's worth making the point that it has become a traditional part of the budget process for ideas to be floated in advance, partly to see what reaction they produce. It does not mean they'll all happen. What is clear, however, is that there are few good or palatable choices open to the Chancellor after the shambles of trussonomics. In the equity markets, having digested the interest rate rises and the latest jobs report, the US saw the S&P 500 index finish down on the week, while in the UK market was uh, was stronger overall, with both the FTSE 100 and the Osha index ending the week higher. The average discount on investment trusts uh, finished the week roughly where it started, around 13.5%, while the investment trust index was roughly unchanged. 
We've had a mixed bag of results from equity investment trusts, including a predictably strong performance from CQUS Natural Resources Growth and Income, ticker CYN, driven by higher commodity prices, International Biotech, ticker IBT, where the NAV was down but ahead of its benchmark, and two popular UK trusts, Fidelity Special Values, ticker FSV, and BlackRock Smaller Companies, ticker BRSC, both reporting negative returns for the year and six months respectively, and underperforming their benchmarks by a few percentage points. We've also had several Q3 NAV updates from property and infrastructure trusts, all of them affected to varying degrees by higher gilt yields, which have the effect of depressing NAVs by pushing up discount rates and offsetting in part, or in some cases exceeding, the benefit from higher revenues and projected higher inflation. As always, you can read all the latest announcements and market movements on the news and data page on the Moneymakers website, together with our latest trust profiles, the most recent of which are Strategic Equity Capital, Third Point Investors, and NB Private Equity. Among the big movers this week was Princess Private Equity, uh, after it surprised the market by suspending or stopping its uh, second interim dividend payment. Lots, therefore, to talk about. To discuss all this and a number of specific issues affecting the investment trust sector, I'm joined again this week, I'm happy to say, by Ewan Lovett-Turner, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Numis Securities. Welcome to the podcast, Ewan. I trust that you'll be bringing us some good news, though, uh, to be honest, good news is a little bit in short supply at the moment. Perhaps I can start by asking you what your thoughts are on the uh, overall market environment this week. We've seen these interest rate announcements from the Fed and the Bank of England. Yeah, so uh, clearly the continued uh, increase in interest rates has been dominating headlines, and, and particularly in the US, you know, markets got pretty excited following the, the Fed interest rate rise, and actually thinking some of that wording was, was signaling a bit of a potential pause at some point in the rate rises. But that was um, sort of firmly quashed, and uh, yeah, markets are down around 4% after that as a result. In the UK, again, you know, further interest rate rises and, and, and pretty gloomy headlines about the prospect for prolonged recessions going forward. So that's certainly dominating sentiment, although markets are, are, are pretty strong this morning on the back of sort of materials and, and banking stocks doing pretty well. I suppose the long, slightly longer term context or, or last month or so is really that, that volatility we, we saw around the mini budget and subsequent events. And, and I think we have seen things calming down a little bit in terms of the currency markets to a degree and government bond rates now around 3.5%, down from a peak of 45 that's the 10-year government bond. So a little bit of normality, but a distinctly different environment now and, and going forward, really, with still tighter monetary uh, policy, removing that tailwind that we've seen for sort of all risk assets for over a decade, really. Yes, I'm interested if you can say anything about the way that your contact with clients, how that's evolving, because my impression is that what we've seen over the course of this year, as the markets have continued to fall, both bonds and equities, uh, it's taken quite a while for a number of investors to come to terms with the fact that this actually might be going on longer than they were used to. You know, buy the dip is a thing of the past at the moment. Are you seeing that in your conversations with your institutional and and uh, to the extent you have them retail clients? Are you feeling uh, that the sentiment amongst investors is changing and is uh, becoming perhaps more realistic than it was earlier in the year? Yeah, I think certainly embrace that um, 
larger and more sustained inf- inflation and, and higher rate environment, I think people are still trying to assess how that impacts their portfolios in the long term. And, you know, specific to investment companies' portfolios, I think we've got quite a lot of investors, you know, weighing up their opportunities in the investment companies world versus a wide variety of other asset classes and, you know, government bonds, I, uh, as I mentioned, now have some sort of yield on them. And so that is a big question for some areas of the investment companies market, some of these alternative income strategies that people have been buying in the absence of yield and just how they stack up versus those other asset classes in a different rate environment. And I think, therefore, people are really focused on what interest rate, uh, you know, exposure to floating rate instruments or the areas of the market that have um, any sort of inherent or explicit or, or, or implicit inflation linkage. So assets that might perform well if we continue to get this uh, yeah, higher rate and, and inflation environment. Yes, I think with bond yields at around 4% or 35 4%, they do start to become an alternative anyway, to win, whereas in the past they were clearly not. Let's talk about discounts, first of all, in the investment trust sector. When you put out your third quarter summary of investment trust sector performance, you said that uh, discounts on average are now pretty much as low as they've been for a very long time. I mean, they're getting out to levels which uh, we haven't seen since the global financial crisis and, and other big bear markets of the past. Is that a fair summary? Or is it affected by market weighting? Does that actually distort the figure somewhat? Well, you certainly need to consider that when you, you look at the long term. At the moment, equity funds are trading on around an 11% discount. That compares to the start of the year, which was around a 4% discount and sort of nearly all-time tights. Alternative funds is where we've seen that big move. And, you know, there's a lot of dispersion within that as well. But they are on average trading around an 18% discount versus premiums of around 4% at the beginning of the year. Looking through October, actually, those absolute levels haven't changed much, but there's there's actually been a huge amount of volatility sort of intra-month. And, and the big sort of change in the, in the last couple of months really is in infrastructure and renewables. And you've seen those move from premiums in mid-September to, you know, most of them getting to double-digit discounts in, in mid-October before having a, a decent recovery. But, you know, many of the infrastructure funds still on discounts and several of the renewables still on double-digit discounts. So that's been the big move as investors are, are trying to, you know, factor in a few things, particularly the higher interest rate environment and how that impacts the discount rates. These discount rates used to value the assets, the long-term cash flows. If you increase that discount rate that you discount the cash flows, uh, if you increase the discount rate you use to discount those cash flows, then you reduce the value of the asset. And so investors have been trying to, to factor that in, but almost exclusively focusing on that factor rather than also a lot of these funds have inflation linkage in their cash flows. Uh, the renewables are benefiting from very high power prices so a little bit sort of myopic on, on single factors rather than taking in the whole. But um, yeah, we've seen some pretty extreme moves. I actually looked at international public partnerships, which over the month of October, its share price is down 0.26%, which might surprise some, but that includes a 5% upward move followed by 15% down and then the 12 or so recovery to get back to where you started. So some really quite vicious moves 
you really probably would have wished you went off to the beach and and if you look at your Hargreaves Lansdowne or other platforms are available, you know, whatever it may be, uh, uh, just at the end of the month, you would have been insulated from from quite a lot of heartache. <laughs> well, that's a, a very important lesson, of course. But this uh, this volatility isn't going to go away anytime soon, is it? I think uh, that seems to be so generally accepted because there's still so much uncertainty out there about where interest rates are going to end up and what the UK government's going to do. Is it going to change the regime for renewables and so on? Those are all bubbling away in the background. And as you say, it takes time for investors to try and work out what the correct numbers for uh, some of these alternative asset trusts are. And in a way, I guess, you know, some of their strengths that they had before, in other words, the attractive yields and the long life nature of many of them is now actually kind of working against them, or at least in relative terms, it's not as attractive as it was. But do you think, you know, in looking at it as an analyst, which you do with your analyst team, do you think that we come back to some kind of slightly more accurate understanding of how different uh, trusts in these alternative sectors are going to be affected? Yeah, I do. It, it does take time, sometimes surprisingly long in investment companies' world. But I think that the quality of the cash flows around some of those infrastructure and renewable funds, when you take the long-term view, will sort of hold out. And yeah, as you mentioned, uncertainty around price caps or windfall taxes and renewables will be important. You know, further pricing evidence in areas like uh, property and, and even sort of private equity to try and restore confidence. But but sometimes that takes, you know, particularly in those second asset classes, you need to build up that body of transactional evidence, uh, deals going through, properties being sold in this different environment to see see really where prices end up settling. But the, the listed investment companies market, quite often it overreacts and that does present opportunities. And, and say an infrastructure we saw in 2018, John Lang infrastructure being taken out in a 1.4 billion uh, takeover by um, some pension funds when the sector moved to a bit of a discount. So I, I think these assets are attracted to a broad range of buyers, you know, although perhaps some pension funds have other things on their mind at the moment. But um, <laughs> well, hardly, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's true. Of course, another consequence is we've had a bit of a desert as far as fundraising is concerned. And I mean, one of the issues for the alternative sector is, you know, they have been issuing a lot of secondary issuance uh, and some new IPOs last year. That's going to dry up as long as uh, these things continue to trade at a discount. So do you think that we will get back to a point where we're seeing more issuance by uh, some of these names in due course when and if this market settle down a bit? I would hope and expect so. And yeah, the, the fundraising market really has slowed down. Um, we're now in the the longest period without an investment company's IPO that I have on record, certainly since 2000. So that's well over 10 months now. But so that, that sort of surpassed the COVID period. And it's in looking increasingly likely that we might have a, a full fallow year. Other fundraising activities has really slowed in the, in the early part of the year. You had a lot of specialist property, infrastructure, renewables, and that really is, well, that's disappeared. And um, the main focus now is the defensive multi-asset type funds like a capital gearing and personal assets or rougher, Brevin Howard Macro as well. In fact, 30 odd million was raised by 24 Income, which invests in European asset-backed securities, which is a, a floating rate asset class, so benefiting from the rise in rates. So I think that going forward, you know, people more comfortable how this different environment affects the asset classes can hopefully lead to a bit of you know, normalization of discounts, and then you can potentially move to issuance. But um, it might be a little, little time along the way before if investors get that confidence. 
Let's then talk about another theme, which is, I think, going to be accelerated. I would be surprised if it isn't by uh, what's been happening in the markets and in the investment trust sector in particular this year, and that is consolidation within the sector. We've got a couple of recent examples. We knew that Independent Investment Trust, for example, the board has proposed merging that into Monks, the Bailey Gifford Investment Trust. And we heard this week that uh, uh, that's been overwhelmingly approved by shareholders and 73% of them are uh, going to roll over into Monks and the remainder are going to take cash out. We've also heard from a slightly different vehicle, which is uh, Starwood European Real Estate Finance. They are going to give the shareholders a realisation opportunity, which is, I think, slightly more surprising than the case of Independent Investment Trust. Perhaps we could just take those two very quickly and just remind us, in the case of Independent Investment Trust, I mean, this is a case of the fund manager retiring and, in effect, the assets going back to the investment firm that he came from. It was well known out for many years. Yeah, so yeah, Max Ward retiring after 22 years running the fund. And as you mentioned, his history is within baby Gifford and, and was manager of Scottish Mortgage from 1989 to 2000. So in many ways, that's a natural home. And, and Douglas McDougall, who's, who's the chair and holds about 15% of share capital, is, a, is an ex-senior partner from back in, in those days. So um, uh, in many respects, that makes some sense. As you say, most shareholders have rolled in and that gives them a tax-efficient way of continuing to have exposure to well, quite a different investment portfolio. I think that's the interesting thing that that it was very much a UK focused portfolio, and now it'll be you know a very diversified global growth portfolio run by Monks and the the Bailey Gifford Global Alpha team. You know, I think that's a pretty uh, safe home for it. It it does shift your geographic exposure, but um, still gives you exposure to. To companies that that are expected to you know deliver some interesting growth, so um yeah most shareholders rolling over and 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 ultimately sort of not surprising to see um a fund manager hanging up their boots eventually after such a, a long period. You probably don't want to grind your way through another bear market like the one we've been in. <laughs> um, I guess I mean the interesting as you say is about the mandate that the investors who roll over will be effectively switching to, which is a global uh, equity mandate rather than a UK one. Bailey Gifford has a UK-focused investment trust, uh, but it has a very different style, doesn't it? It's a, it's a growth style, and that is out of favour at the moment. So I imagine that's presumably why they didn't uh, offer that as an alternative. Yeah, and I think Monks is upward of two billion market cap as well, so it can readily absorb the assets coming in. It can offer investors that are coming in trading liquidity as and when they want it. So. Um, probably an attractive option from that point of view as well. So, yes, it has a market cap of around 230 million, something like that, I think, uh, Independent Investment Trust, and they are paying a, a final dividend, I think, aren't they, of 9p, I think, before this uh, all goes through. So let's talk about the other one, which I mentioned, Starwood European Real Estate Finance. This is one we don't talk about a lot. We don't talk about debt funds very much on the podcast. Perhaps we should. Can you just give us a little bit of background on this one? I mean, is it, uh, is it as surprising to you as it appears to me on the face of it? It's quite a large trust. It's been doing quite a lot of share buybacks and so on. But um, the board seems to have decided that it's had enough. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, so the fund yeah, invests in the debt of various properties. Um, Starwood are a very big asset manager based in the US. The team over here manage this quite active sort of portfolio financing of often development or refurbishment style properties. Uh, they tend to have a bit of a story to them. There's numerous uh, golf hotels, in fact, that have been there, which... Um, without wishing to guess the demographic of your audience, some might be familiar with. 
and so um, you know, ultimately, I, th- I think is actually a pretty decent manager who've, who've done well. But it's slightly uh, reflective of issues in the investment company sector and maybe structure in this case where listed debt funds have, have struggled to gain attention really across the board. I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think most of the audience are, are just traditionally equity investors and struggle to invest in, in debt or you know fully understand the risk return. And also people who are comfortable holding debt often don't like doing it within the equity wrapper where you get a bit more volatility around the share price as well. You know, the fund had a bit of a slow start when it was launched and the rate environment probably, you know, didn't help the expected returns versus where we were at launch. So a couple of headwinds to, to overall demand. And, and I'd say maybe some of its peers in, in other areas, direct lending, really did disappoint, which has tarnished many of the listed debt funds with, with the same brush. And it can be difficult to actually get the disclosures of the exact holdings. So a sort of myriad of reasons why people in general just aren't that keen. It's somewhat ironic because, you know, now might be really quite an interesting time to be investing in in property debt and finance. And there are probably going to be some pretty attractive rates available uh, from investing in that. The fund was offering a, a 75% exit at the end of the year, a part of its you know, discount control mechanisms that were already in place. Um, it had been trying to actively buy back to help try and narrow the discount, which had had some, some limited success. But ultimately, I think feedback from shareholders was that quite a large proportion would take up that exit and that would leave the fund not being big enough or having the prospects of growth from that. So the board um, has decided to wind it up. Yeah, well, that's an interesting decision. And I think, uh, uh, well, one has to say that that is uh, one of the board's primary duties, and it's good to see directors actually acting on that. Though, of course, the current market difficulties, as you say, could turn out to be uh, not as challenging in in the event as shareholders currently think. I'm thinking about the example of, you know, Polar Capital Global Financials, which nearly went out of business a couple of years ago, uh, managed to survive a continuation vote and, and then, you know, added a lot of assets and performed pretty well after that. So in general terms, do you think that the debt sector is, is in for a bit of rationalisation and consolidation? Do you think there'll be others looking at this way of thinking? I think it already has to a degree. A number of funds that, that disappointed have wound up and also a number of funds were, were backed by a number of institutional investors, the likes of Woodford and Invesco, who um, ultimately, after a few years, turned to sellers. And that sort of fundamental shift in the, the shareholder base was a struggle for a number of these funds. I think you get probably yeah a smaller core of funds that are really delivered have proved their underwriting capabilities through good times and and more difficult and the, the funds that have done that and and investors can take them on trust that their high quality management teams will likely survive and and hopefully you know continue to flourish but there might be a, a few funds that fail to get critical mass that do also throw in the towel at a later date. I was just looking through actually the list of direct uh, lending uh, investment trusts. There's about eight or so, uh, and they're all offering yields of most of them between seven and ten percent, which looks pretty high. Average about nine, I think, and that sort of normally is a bit of a signal that uh, there might be trouble coming. They look almost too high those yields to me. Well, there are a range of vehicles in there. A couple of which are winding up, but it is a, a relatively high return, you know, high yielding uh, sector. That's always been the case, even in that low rate environment. You know, with that, it means it's not without risk on the underlying. 
and you know understanding that exact risk return has always been the tricky bit. You've also got some with exposure to floating rate assets. Biopharma Credit would be one in there that has been demonstrating its strong underwriting and does have you know a bulk of the portfolio in floating rate assets. You know, twenty four that I mentioned, and then a number of the um, more diversified plays have have a combination. So I think they're likely to be the ones where you see the yield floating up with interest rates and investors may find that an attractive place to be. Well, let's turn then to another sector, which has been very much in the news, or at least very much at the forefront of investors' uh, calculations, let's say, and that is private equity. We heard this week from uh, Princess Private Equity, which is uh, one of the bigger vehicles in the private equity space. And uh, they made what appears to have been a bit of a shock to the market in that they uh, basically decided not to pay a second interim dividend which uh, I think was not what the market was expecting, and the shares have sold off quite sharply. Tell us about the background to that one and what's happening in the private equity sector generally. We know discounts are very wide Yeah, so um, I, I think it is a bit of a special case where what we've seen with Princess, it paid a sort of structural yield out of capital, effectively, of 4% of NAV, opening NAV, I think I think it was a policy, and like 5%, sorry. And so a very chunky yield funded from cash flows from realizations ultimately. And the big sort of error it's made is in, in its cash flow forecasting around hedging currency. We've seen this before, really, um, particularly listed hedge funds in 2008 uh, were caught out by this. And to the extent some debt funds, probably in sort of 2016 or so, this fund was unusual and unique in the listed private equity space in hedging its uh, currency exposure back to euros. So around 50% of its assets were in US dollars. It hedged that back to euros. With the depreciation of euros versus dollars, the, the value of those assets increases, but the value of the hedge correspondingly decreases. And when that comes to the end of its life, the fund needs to settle that loss on the hedge in cash. So not really an NAV impact, but a cash flow impact. And the fund continued to invest, and and when those cash calls came in, it felt that it necessary to suspend its dividend. And this was owned by many income investors, and and as a result, you saw the share price, I think, on the day down around sixteen percent. So, not an issue fundamentally with the assets, the private equity assets that the fund invests in, but definitely a sort of governance and control issue that raises some red flags. And investors understandably pretty disappointed about this. I suppose the big thing I'm getting asked by investors is, does that have implications across the rest of the listed private equity space? Balance sheets are a key. You don't want to have to be a force seller of assets or, or raising capital at a discount, as some did in the GFC. And I think this is quite a unique case and doesn't carry across to the other funds in the sector where balance sheets are a lot more robust than we saw pre global financial crisis, and I think are are well-placed to continue to meet their commitments, even if we have a bit of a slowing, as as we are seeing, of transactional activity. The big thing is is looking at asset values and what they're doing. Many of these funds are trading at, you know, 30 to 50% discounts, you know, really incredibly wide, given that the sector does offer exposure to a number of really high-quality managers with long-term track records, and investors are really discounting a huge reduction in asset values. And that's something that we're actually just not seeing coming through at the moment. 
number of funds are still seeing exit activities and realizing uplifts to carrying values, which is positive. We've seen some are reductions in NEVs, but actually some funds are up. Oakwood Capital, I think, is up around, well, it was 11% in the first half. And the latest quarter, we've had Oakley come in and its NAV is actually up 4%. Apex this morning in euro terms up 3 around flat in, in constant currency. So most of these funds, are their valuations are based on September. And the indication from the wider market, from the Apollos, the Blackstones, uh, the KKRs is sort of flat to, to modestly down over Q3. And so just nothing at the levels that we're seeing the discounts in the funds seem to be more than compensating for any NAV declines that we'll be expecting in the, the medium term. So I think what you're saying is therefore that this is A, a special case, and B, um, it, this may be another case where investors are overreacting to the developments in the broader market. And no doubt perhaps with memories of the GFC in their minds, when circumstances are rather different. Nevertheless, between 30 and 50% is a pretty chunky discount to live with. Earlier this year, we saw one or two private equity investment trusts, including uh, Pantheon, comes to mind, saying that they were going to do uh, share buybacks in, in order to try and reduce the discount. And that brings us on to another broader theme, which is uh, something you published an interesting note on this week, which is about this argument about whether or not buybacks actually work in reducing discounts as far as alternative asset trusts are concerned. We know that in the equity investment trust space, it can be effective uh, and has been effective in a number of cases, though not always. But what's the argument around whether or not buybacks are effective in alternative assets? And, and let's start with private equity in particular. As I said, I mentioned Pantheon, but there'll be one or two others which have looked at it at least. But there's a sort of feeling that somehow, well, if it doesn't make a difference to the discount in the short term, you know, why should I bother? Yeah, and that's a sort of interesting debate. And we get some sort of management groups or boards saying there's no evidence that the buybacks narrow a discount. And I think how I look at the share buybacks is actually looking at a very much a broader range of, of objectives of a buyback. Ultimately, a discount is a factor of numerous different inputs. The nature of the, the underlying assets, the, the degree to which it's promoted, the nature of shareholder registers, and you can't expect to solve it with any one factor, really. So I'm trying to get particularly boards and, and management groups thinking about uh, those broader objectives of what a buyback is trying to achieve. It's not buying back a few shares and marching in a, a discount. In fact, I think, you know, particularly it's demonstrating that the boards are acting in the best interests of shareholders. They're looking at that share price and using all the means available to them to you know, make sure that more meaningfully represents the asset value. I think buybacks can be a useful tool in sending a message. I think they serve a purpose in terms of trying to limit discount volatility and share price volatility, which is particularly important for relatively low risk return asset classes if you're trying to deliver a consistent return profile. The numbers I've looked at and more case studies for specific funds, you, you do see improving liquidity and, and narrower spreads for funds that buy back than funds that don't. And that's looking across, I looked across the whole equity universe because it's just a bigger, more recognized area. And when you get to extreme discounts, such as the listed private equity space, then there's meaningful NAV accretion from buying back. So, you know, if you buy back 5% of your share capital at a 40-odd discount, you add over 2% to the NAV. And if you were looking to invest 
that same amount of capital, you, you need to deliver a 70 odd percent return to deliver so, that upgrade. So it's a sort of risk-free nav accretion and it sends a pretty clear message to investors that you're confident in the valuations and the NAV, probably when you're getting closer to the NAV, then I'd hope they'd be confident that the valuations is better than a 50% discount. But that message can be important. And also, you know, maintaining a stable register. So um, you can keep the wolf from the door of the activist style investor, perhaps through a buyback mechanism. And, you know, a value investor isn't inherently bad, but it can make it tougher to narrow a discount. You know, when things improve, then you might have a, a sort of natural seller as a discount narrows. So it's getting boards to look at this and think about it. You know, clearly focus on their balance sheets. Yes. But this is an additional tool along with, you know, manager promotion, doing their webinars, doing their investor meetings, disclosure, governance and delivering NAV performance clearly is, is highly important. But uh, looking at it as a, one of the tools in the toolbox rather than a specific item that either works or it doesn't. And particularly, it helps a board demonstrate that that long term thinking for shareholders and it might not have an impact on the, the, you know, the discount right now, but it might have an impact, you know, in the next cycle, in the next downturn, you're renowned to be a company that um, looks after shareholders and that should be rewarded. And that hopefully means in the, in the good times in between, there's more chance of going to a premium and being able to issue shares and grow a investment company. So as you say, one of the negatives is you obviously don't want to run out of cash if we're going yeah. into a tougher market. Perhaps you know it depends on your level of commitments and so on. Do you think there are some uh, private equity trusts which perhaps uh, either because they've they've been relying on debt or haven't yet replaced debt with equity, which will be difficult to do obviously in, in the current market or new fundraising? Um, do you think there are some which are maybe got their balance sheet slightly out of, of whack, notwithstanding the general uh, observation that? Uh, they're in much better shape than they were, you know, in the global financial crisis. Yeah, I do believe they are generally in much better shape and boards are acutely aware of that balance sheet risk in a way that, you know, prior to the GFC, it was all about efficient balance sheets and overcommitment strategies. And now it is, is, is making sure that you've got the resources to do that. And so several funds have, have made some reasonably sized commitments in recent months to new vintages of their funds, you know, HG, Oakley, even Apex have made decent commitments. I think Apex was around 85% of its assets it reported today are in commitments, but they're expected to be drawn down over a number of years. They're not generally drawn down in full. And, you know, it's got around 50% of its assets, uh, you know, as, as an example, uh, in a combination of cash, um, it's undrawn debt facility, which most funds do have access to. And it's included within that is, is sort of 26% or so in debt investments that it can use as a liquidity pool. So investors are really focused on that. Um, HG Capital has a unique feature. In the extreme case, it will be able to not fund its commitments. HG, um, the manager, have given it that ability, which is pretty unique you know, in the whole private equity world. Um, so it, it still manages its balance sheet as if it wants to fund all its commitments, but it has this unique opt-up clause that gives you a lot of comfort behind that. Whilst most of the rest are modestly or, or, or unlevered portfolios, and I think that does you know, give decent confidence. And, 
And we've seen still a, a fair amount of realization activity from these portfolios this year. You know, that, that might be biased to the highest quality investments in there. You know, things are slowing, but, but so far they've continued to generate a decent amount of cash from their portfolios as well. Okay, so finally then, uh, Ewan, on this particular issue, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on what's happening in the commercial property sector. We have mentioned property already, obviously, earlier. But in terms of, you know, the kind of reporting we're seeing, Q3 updates, in general, we're seeing, though with the exceptions, we're seeing uh, capital values coming down by, you know, a few percentage points, I guess. And uh, there'd be one or two which are bucking the trend. But I noticed, for example, that the Balanced Commercial Property Trust, sticker BCPT, which is, again, one of the bigger, um, more diversified investment trusts, uh, they have actually said that they are going to suspend their buybacks, I think. They've been doing some buybacks in the past. Uh, so do you think there's a difference in the commercial property space where there's the room for manoeuvre, if you like, to do buybacks is rather more limited, perhaps? So you, you have seen a number of property trusts doing some buybacks through this year. What that's generally been focused around is having some of that excess cash flow, often from portfolio realizations, and so being heavily focused around funds who, who have that spare cash, you know, balanced commercial property being one of those. And so that, that certainly, you know, that demonstrates that focus on, on the balance sheet. And, um, you've also got the sort of looming asset value declines, which, which some of them are starting to recognize. But you've still got the expectation that coming quarters will lead to further declines in the in the property market, you know, reflecting that increase in rates and the more difficult financing environment and the knock on effect that has on the price people are willing to pay for a property. So you've got that backdrop of declining asset values, which means people are, are probably pretty focused on yeah, making sure they can pay their dividends and keeping cash to spare as and when you need it. But um yeah, it's a slightly different approach to a buyback, I think, with with some of that, you know, proceeds from disposals. And in fact, in the listed private equity space, you saw Harbourvest sell sort of twenty odd million of its assets at around a twenty percent discount and use that to fund a specific buyback. You know, when you're buying back at a fifty percent discount, that's quite a accretive transaction. And so, you know, different approaches from different boards depending on how they view their balance sheets. Yeah. Then sort of finally looking ahead to the end of the year then, Ewan, obviously we've had a lot of end of year rallies in recent years. But one exception I recall, 2018 was one which didn't go that well. So have you got any thoughts you could give to our listeners about what might happen here? I mean, I can throw out a number of statistics that people in other broking firms have been throwing out. Things like, you know, the US stock market has never failed to go up after the midterm elections towards the end of the year and all that kind of stuff. You can pluck these historical data out if you want to uh, try and get somebody to buy something. But uh, what is your feeling as we go towards the end of the year, I mean, based on what's happening and uh, what you're hearing from your clients? It's a tricky one. The, the news out there is almost universally pessimistic. And I, I, I suppose that's probably the only thing that you can grab onto to be positive about. Um, if everyone's negative, then you know that might be the start of a, a turning point. But Ultimately, I think in this environment of tighter money, central bank uh, tightening, uh, that does fuel volatility. It is a tougher backdrop for many asset classes and asset values. But in that, I don't think that means it's impossible to generate returns. I think it will just be very, very selective and a lot more dispersion between managers of equity funds really earning their stripes. And you see that some will deliver and some will, will not. And we'll get a bit more 
reassessing that, those outlooks for somewhat specialist asset classes and where, where we're actually left for that. And hopefully the UK can regain a bit of credibility. That will be nice in financial markets. I think we, we've started that, but a little bit more calmness and dullness would, would certainly be nice. In the investment companies world, yeah, I think you still have that tough fundraising environment, certainly. Hopefully we can see some moderation of discounts from some extreme levels, but that does take, you know, churning through some fundamentals, which are a little bit more complicated than they were five or 10 years ago when you were looking at, you know, mainly equity funds. Now with a multitude of asset classes, you've got quite a bit more to get your head around. So it's going to be a busy period for analysts anyway at Investment Trust, uh, Investment Trust analysts at uh, broking firms. So uh, at least you'll be busy anyway, come what may. Uh, <laughs> let's hope that all that work pays dividends, as I'm sure it will. The other worry, I suppose, in the short term is what's going to come out of the mini budget. I see there have been some leaks in the papers talking about, you know, there will be increases in taxes. We know that. Uh, they've been looking at capital gains tax. They've been looking at corporation tax. They've been looking at dividend income tax. Uh, all those things, if they actually happen, will... Well, it'd be hard to paint them as being positives for the sector. And I'm not sure that's in the price yet, uh, totally. But uh, we'll have to wait and see about that. So thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise this week. And uh, that's it for this week, uh, everybody. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.